Welcome to AIs and with Andrew and Jen, a podcast where a designer and a data scientist break it down and duke it out over how to create awesome AI experiences. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Halloween edition of AI Zen with Andrew and Jen. And of course, of course, Andrew and I thought the very best thing to talk about today would be terrible, scary AI, which is like my favorite topic ever. Um, So, Andrew, you and I, for the first time, made an outline of what we're actually going to talk about during an episode today. Yay. So hopefully... um, yeah, this will go smoothly. And we have specific things that we want to tell you guys. So we thought the best thing to start off with would be the the scariest story of all, the AI Skynet singularity apocalypse. And since um, that is a complicated topic involving why and why it can't happen, I'm going to ask Andrew questions about this. So Andrew, when we think about the Skynet story, which is like Matthew Matthew Broderick's experience when all of the computers around the world connected together to take over all the weapons on the planet and then destroy the humans, um, what would it take for that to happen? Yeah, very, very scary thought. Let me put down all this Halloween candy and uh, <laughs> get in the mood. Uh, and, and for the listeners, this is story one. We're going to do three stories so you know where we are. Uh, ah, yeah. So the, the singularity. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of fear uh, of AI, partly just due to the, the fear of the unknown. And one of the things that I think people are the most scared about or the most uh, off base about is what AI is compared to uh, what it's actually named. The, the names of things, I think, really give us the wrong the wrong uh, thoughts about what things are. So even the name AI, artificial intelligence, and you may know that there's machine learning behind the scenes. And these things, they sound kind of terrifying, right? That we're, we're gonna be supplanted. And I think in reality, what these things are actually are is far less scary. Uh, so artificial intelligence, everybody's got their own definition, but it's, I think it is something that uh, a computing system that essentially acts with this like like a human, it seems intelligent, not necessarily that it is. And I really like the IBM branding on this, where we talk more about augmented intelligence, uh, same initials AI, and it sort of more reinforces that you're the one who's getting smarter from this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, exactly. I have a point to add to this, Andrew. So. Um, well, okay. So let me start with sometimes when I am trying to explain to teams in a really fast way, what AI is capable of doing, um, I give them a quick list of the things that humans are capable of that machines aren't good at versus the things that machines are good at that humans are capable of. And it's pretty much a one-to-one switch. Like machines are good at processing a lot of data really quickly. They're good at just very precise tracking of things, whereas humans are really not great at that stuff. But we are good at like emotional intelligence and strategy. And I've been telling this kind of like a story example about it for maybe a year now. And just this week, 
I found out there's actually like a scholarly paper on it called Moravec's Paradox, which says machines and humans frequently have opposite strengths and weaknesses. Which I just say like, damn it, why didn't I patent that? But I was too late anyway. Um, Anyway, Moravec's Paradox. That's the word that I learned to support your theory of humans versus machines. I feel so much smarter having learned that today. Very, I, I love the name for it. And it's, it's absolutely true. And just thinking, you know, even what powers us, right? Electricity versus food. We're very different. We're very yeah. Different. Yeah. And that makes sense for, for the whole augmented intelligence perspective. If you're good at one thing and I'm good at another thing, like you and I are, Andrew, me and design and you and data science, we can come together and work together and do better things together than we could individually. Boy, isn't that the, the, the truth? it's always true isn't it it always comes back to that yeah it does togetherness um so you had some um you mentioned something about machine learning and the different kinds of machine learning and the terms around those and how they're kind of scary could you talk a little bit more about the machine learning terms that are rather off-putting sure so so let's again think about um, the, the words machine learning and what, what that implies. You, you think about how you learn and you assume, well, hey, we called it machine learning. It's just like the way I learn, except it's a machine. And that's, that's really not at all what's going on. Um, machine learning, as a general practice, I would consider it more of a, a really good pattern matcher. Um, but let's let's talk about the different kinds of, of machine learning that, that are there. Because again, when we hear the term machine learning, we think it's learning on its own. And while there is a branch of machine learning called unsupervised, which I'll get into a little bit, um, machine learning generally involves a lot of advice, uh, a lot of help from a, from a human. So three types, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. Uh, supervised learning, you can think of it as you are providing the machine learning algorithm with an answer. So you're providing it a set of either questions and answers, inputs and outputs, uh, but they are pairs. And you're telling the machine, given these inputs, I want to produce this output. And it's sort of learning or perhaps inferring a pattern or a methodology to get from those inputs to those outputs. It's not really learning, so to speak, um, but it's, not being programmed explicitly either. We don't tell it, you need to use rule A, B, and C to get from the input to the output. But however you get there, that's fine. Um, but that, that's all we're giving you. We're giving you a pair of inputs and outputs. Yeah. Um, I was talking to some googly people a while back and they kind of described this as like, we don't really have AI. We like at best have predictive math. That would be more accurate. Right. Would that be a good word yeah. to replace supervised, unsupervised, all that? Some people would just call it even uh, regression techniques. Yeah. From, from the field of mathematics. So so that's the, that's the one. And those supervised tasks are generally pretty task specific. So if I train an algorithm on, uh, on a certain task domain, it's not, not much of that's going to apply outside of that very specialized domain where I've taught it. So it's very targeted. So the, the second type, we have unsupervised, and people get excited. Oh, unsupervised, there, that was the one that I meant. Um, mm-hmm. That's the one that's going to be Skynet. 
And uh, again, you know, slow down uh, on that one. You don't need to fear this one either. Uh, so unsupervised, uh, it's a type of, it's a family of algorithms where you don't provide the answers. Um, you let the machine group things according to what it thinks uh, what it thinks is best. Generally speaking, these are things you're grouping according to similarity. So for instance, if I gave the machine learning algorithm uh, a thousand emails and I said, go sort them into 10 groups, it'll come up with 10 groups that are quote unquote, most similar to each other. Um, but if I told you, Jen, hey, go put these emails into 10 groups, and I told the machine learning algorithm, put these emails into 10 groups, you're going to come up with completely different groups. Mm -hmm. The notion where it's basing the similarity off of, uh, you, it's a black box to you, but it won't, be, it won't be based on the kind of inherent structures that are in your mind. Uh, you, you'll look at the groups that it came up with and you'll say, yeah, th those are kind of useful, but I need to tweak them. Right? I can't just use these uh, and it doesn't know why, why they're together. It's just, hey, these are kind of similar. Yeah, I like to think about that as like um, when you have so well, when there could be a lot of possibilities, but you don't want to spend the rest of your life vetting all the possibilities, you could use unsupervised learning to look through stuff and find its own patterns. And then you could be like, oh, I never would have thought of that particular grouping of things. That might be interesting or nope, no, thanks. Moving on. Exactly. Um, and that is that is the place where we use it the most is in the beginning uh, of a project or some exploration to just see, hey, are, are there any patterns inherent in the data? We might throw an unsupervised algorithm at it, but we're going to do plenty of supervision later on. Yeah. Like marketing, when you're like, who also does something else along with buying this one thing that could then I could market to them in a different way? Like, I would never have thought to say everybody that buys cat litter also seems to watch, let's say, Star Trek on Thursday nights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Things like that. You, you might find that. And again, you, you, you definitely want to have a human vetting because what if you find some, uh, some connection that you don't want to make? Yes. Uh, yes. You, you don't want to, don't give the machine total control. <laughs> Never. Oh, which, okay. Good thing you said that. Oh, wait, no, we better go through reinforcement first. We'll, we'll, we'll follow the outline, Jen. I love it. All right. Follow the outline. Okay. So, so the last one, re reinforcement learning. Um, again, this one has sort of scary terminology associated with it. If, uh, if you read the, the Wikipedia page or other things, um, essentially, you, you, it's, it's sort of in between the other two. You, you don't give it very good. Um, you don't give it a lot of guidance but you, you give it what's called a, a reward function. And to me, that's the, the part that sounds scary. But again, that isn't that scary to me. Um, where essentially you, you tell it, hey, there's this outcome and you wanna get more of this outcome. And uh, it can infer how to get there. Uh, so basically racking up points like a video game, that's its reward. Exactly. But yeah. the reason I say this isn't scary is like it doesn't even know points are, are a big thing. Like it doesn't care about the points uh, per se. It's, hey, I'm going to make a choice that gives me the most points. But it's not going to go home and, you know, cry on its pillow that it didn't get enough points. Yeah. Or get angry right. or any of those things. It has no emotion attached to it. Yeah. It's just being told one thing to do. It's the um, paperclip problem, right? Yep. 
Do you want to tell them the paperclip problem? I don't because I didn't know what the paperclip problem was. Oh no, oh no, the paperclip problem, like the classic horror story. And I forget who came up with this. It was a long time ago. But if you tell the AI to maximize the number of paperclips it can make, and it's inside this factory and it, you know, figures out how to automate the machinery and reduce the number of, you know, steps necessary. And it fully makes this factory awesome at paper clips, but you didn't ever tell it when to stop optimizing for paper clips. And then mm-hmm. it starts like optimizing the town for paper clips and then the whole country for paper clips. And pretty soon, like the whole world is optimized for making paper clips. Oh. Not because it's doing the wrong thing, but because the human didn't think about that scenario. If you had a flashlight and a campfire uh, on your face, that would have been a little scarier. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm scared from your voice, but uh, no, I'm not too scared of that scenario. <laughs> yeah, it's it's far fetched, but you get the point. Absolutely, but but you you tied into it. Look, you you still want uh, human confirmation, accountability. You want all those things associated to these algorithms. Just keep an eye on it, right? Mm-hmm. Pull, pull mm-hmm. a plug when it when it pulls enough when it creates enough paper clips for you. Yeah. So, all right, let's get back to the the Skynet actually interesting stuff, which is what would it take? Andrew, for us to get to Skynet scenario, but with weapons or disease instead of paperclips. Yeah, I, I think there's there's three things that they're missing from a sort of runaway AI scenario. One is a, a generalized intelligence or, or generalized uh, machine learning where um, we're not training it on one specific task, but we're teaching it how to learn. And uh, there's a completely separate field um, called uh, AGI, artificial general intelligence, and that that's that's been just around the corner for a very long time. Uh, so I, I I'm not worried about that showing up tomorrow. And, and all of the AIs that you're seeing uh, advertised in the news or whatever, they're all very task specific uh, AIs. They're not very transferable at all. So. Uh, gen- a generalization would be the first thing. Uh, the, the second would be uh, a, a team or, or network of, of AIs working together uh, to work on us to, you know, to, for, for bigger results, right? So that, that they somehow be connected or, or loose on the internet. That would be the second thing. And the third would be, in the end, they, they still don't care. Uh, and they're not tied to, to something that, mm-hmm. can hurt, that can hurt us, right? So if an algorithm wants to generate points for itself, um, big deal, right? Um, it, it, it's not uh, being tied to a specific weapon or, or things like that. So, hey, right. keep your AI away from the guns. I think you'll be fine. And you said something interesting in there, which is it still doesn't care. And okay, I'm going to take you down the philosophy road. So if let's say, let's just say we get to generalized AI and it has the ability to emulate cognitive communication. So it can communicate and reason like a human. It, at that point, can we start wondering about it caring about things? Sure, I, I think we, we, we would if we were anywhere close to that. Absolutely. And how far off do you think that is? I'm not planning on seeing it in my lifetime. 
Because, well, you're not, and I don't think we were close either. But then there are people like um, Ray Kurzweil who said 40 years, and that was like five or 10 years ago. Sure. You think they're just but they nutty? Also, they, they, they also made those kinds of predictions in the 60s and the 70s. So Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, I think this, the, the fear is that, you know, we increasingly accelerate the speed at which we are discovering and improving technology and it'll just improve and it get faster and faster and faster. And then at one point we'll hit a moment where suddenly in a snap second, it knows everything. Yeah. And then it takes off. No, I, I understand that argument, but I, I think we're also getting better at the, the ethics or the accountability of this. I mean, the, in the news, we had the, the, the credit program where it turns out that, that women weren't getting the same credit limits as men, not, not even close, right? And there's pretty much a universal outrage and like, let's stop this now. And it's, it's gonna be fixed. I actually have confidence in this one. They're, they're, they're going to fix this one. It's not like they're gonna say, hey, suck it up. Um, we can do what we want. Um, we trust the machines, all that sort of thing. I think there's a generalization that, hey, we were completely in the wrong here. Um, we were ignorant, we didn't know, but um, we will do better. And not only that, everybody else who's building anything AI is paying very close attention, right? They, they don't want this to be them and uh, not just for the negative, you know, for the negative press, but I, I think this is the first time people are really seeing, uh, hey, these kinds of bad outcomes are, are possible and um, they, they don't want to produce the bad outcomes. I really like that coming from you because well, you're working with all different kinds of clients. You're not like me. I'm just working with IBM's internal products. You're going out into the world and seeing this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know where you're not going is to evil empires <laughs> that, <laughs> that may not agree or care with that. But I don't think anyone is in our, in our podcast right now is informed to talk about that. Right. Okay, well, let's assume evil empires, anybody but evil empires is trying very hard to do the right thing and possibly even evil empires as well. They're never trying to do the right uh, thing anyway, right? So Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, you talked about human confirmation and ethics and accountability. Now what do you want to talk about? Well, let, let's go into the second fear. Okay, what's fear two? Fear two, giving up control or I don't want to trust this machine or this AI, even though it might do the job better than me or more efficiently mm. than me. That's the, um, they took our jobs, uh, fear. And okay. So let's talk about some examples that aren't, they took our jobs fear. There's the, well, okay. So I was getting my hair cut and did the other day and the lady in the seat next to me was talking about the Tesla that she and her husband share and how she is just getting used to, um, taking her hands off the wheel, but keeping her eyes on the road while it's going down one lane. But she takes control back when she wants to switch lanes or do anything other than go straight. Whereas her husband is fully checked out. He'll let the car drive pretty much from work all the way to home. And so they, she's describing the various levels of trust. Mm -hmm. um, 
so another example is uh, flying being safer than driving, um, but we're more scared of our planes. And on top of it, you know, planes are only flown by humans for about, what is it, like seven minutes out of every flight. The rest of the time, it's all automated by machines and kind of thank God that it is. Um, so this fear that we're giving up control, I think it, we have to remind ourselves that humans make mistakes. And that paradox that we talked about earlier, the Moravex paradox, where humans are good at some things that machines aren't good at and vice versa. This is such a good manifestation of that idea that we work together at the things we're good at and use the other one for the things that we're not good at to do the best possible job moving forward. So humans make mistakes. Uh, machine at some things, machines make mistakes at some things. And sometimes those things are different, but we have to remember, like there's never 100% fallacy. There's never like a total lack of bias. We have to be checking each other, machines, checking our work, us checking their work to get to the best possible outcome, given the problems that we are trying to solve today. So I don't think it's so much about giving up control or putting all of your trust into the machine in order to benefit from from the AI technology that's coming out today. It's about, I think, taking responsibility for the capabilities of your own brain and recognizing the capabilities of this machine and actively um, considering the recommendations that it's making and actively leveraging it to improve the work that you're trying to do or the mission that you're trying to accomplish. <clears throat> So, so this is the, I love what you said about the hundred percent, um, the hundred percent accuracy fallacy. Um, when we first, when we typically go to a client and we we're talking about an AI solution, we often ask, well, what's your, what's the error rate from your humans that you're either, uh, augmenting or replacing. And they kind of look back and it's like, what do you mean? Uh, our, our humans aren't making mistakes. They're they're working at 100, uh, percent or we have mm-hmm. we have reviews in place so that mistakes don't get through, and uh, that's unlikely, right? You're probably still making mistakes somewhere, um, and you probably still have a bias in your system somewhere. Um, but what we're finding is that the process of in, embarking on an AI journey causes you to ask these kinds of questions or to review your whole process to think about. Where, where you could be making mistakes now, how you correct them, where you might have biases, uh, because when you're building an AI system, you're often um, essentially scaling your experts, right? You're, you're taking what they know, their patterns, their expertise, and you're putting it into a system so that you can scale beyond them, right? Because mm. computers are good at scaling. That's something humans are yeah. good at. Um, this is a great opportunity to investigate all those things. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that because we can go so deep with computers, uh, with less amount of time, with less taxing. And we know we all make mistakes constantly. Every email I send out has mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so there's, yeah, so there's definitely that. And then there's the issue of like the responsibility of those of us who are building and designing AI, um, to give our users transparency into how 
the AI is working behind the scenes so that they can determine, um, you know, whether or not they're going to take those recommendations. And so that, you know, users have a reason to trust the way that you're implementing that AI, because you're always being transparent about how you're using it. And hopefully, you know, providing specs about the data that you're using, providing insight into, um, you know, how the models are being built, that kind of stuff. And, and we we're talking about that a lot. Um, Obviously, not just at IBM, but everywhere today. Nobody wants to hear because the machine said so. No, we really, really don't. <laughs> and, and you won't trust a, you won't trust a system that says because I said so. Yeah, Hal, definitely not Hal. So, I screwed up your last question. I was going to go for, right forward anyway. All right, go for it. So, related to our previous fear of just giving up control. Uh, some people are afraid AI is coming for our jobs. What do you think mm -hmm. about that, Jen? Mm -hmm. Well, I heard a good quote on this, uh, a quote on this a while ago where uh, that said, managers won't lose their jobs to AI. It's managers who don't use AI that will lose their jobs. And uh, okay, so I, I think you could just replace that word AI with staying current with technology and managers just with the general workforce. And yeah, obviously, AI is another tool. It's not a human. It's not going to sit behind your desk and be able to do everything that you do. Um, but if you don't learn how to leverage it and the person next to you does, then I think, you know, yeah, it has a, there's a place where it's, it's not that AI is replacing you. It's just that we all have a responsibility to keep up with the latest, greatest, uh, technology out there so that we can all deliver the best thing or widget or whatever we're making. So, um, I don't see that as a job replacement. I hopefully see it as a job improvement and then a choice, um, there's the, you know, the other scenario we can talk about manufacturing and automation and, and how robots are potentially placing people on production lines. And, uh, I was in a speaking on a panel recently with a, a local community college school. And what they do is provide classes to all the different industries in town based on what they need. So one of the classes they've been providing a lot and getting a lot of requests for lately is coming into factories to upskill the workers that are no longer needed to work on the production lines because of the automation and robotics that are being placed in. But they still have such knowledge of um, that production line of the industry, of their domain, that their employers don't want to let them go. They have all kinds of other work that they'd rather them be working on. So they're bringing in schools to educate these people and are actually creating more jobs. So that's a potential outcome. I'm not saying that's going to be every outcome. Obviously, every technology you know, changes the world. But I don't think that there's a massive fear. I don't feel more scared of AI than I did of the telephone replacing me. I just feel like it's just a different thing that you interact with. Yeah. And th this reminds me of a, a use case I've been working with recently. Uh, it's essentially uh, watching and answering the phone, right? We're, we're helping call mm -hmm. agents and we're able to deflect uh, the sort of boring, tedious calls that are answered with a simple database lookup. And it frees the call reps to do calls that are actually hard and require the 
the, the ambiguity and the, the, the problem solving skills that, that humans are really good at. And I, I imagine that for these reps, it's a relief that I, I don't have to be on the call with all these, you know, dumb, simple calls, you know, six, seven hours yeah. a day. And I can really focus on the interesting ones or, or whatever project my employer's got. They, they don't want uh, all these smart people answering these simple database lookup calls. Yeah, it's, you know, hopefully unburdening us from a lot of, you know, just the grunt work that all of us do every day. Then there's also the cool idea that um, using AI can make a lot of tools more accessible to a broader workforce. So by implementing some automation, maybe skills that you would have had to go to school for before, before you could take this job are no longer necessary because the AI is there to help you do it, uh, whether it's walking you through how to do it or giving you, um, you know, advice or tips or actually doing it for you and then letting you know what the next step to take is. Yeah, I, I think just one more positive that I can come up with is a, a lot of things, or a lot of applications we see of AI is enabling additional channels for, for companies to interact in because, you know, today's uh, consumer today's user expects you know, what they want, when they want it, in the form they want it, the channel they want, etc. We're just growing channels. It's not like these channels are going away, right? So there's these even more stuff to to maintain. Hey, AI might be helping on a couple of them, uh, but there's there's plenty of stuff to do. We're we're generating new work, new challenges, new solutions. Um, it's not all about replacement either. Mm-mm. Hence the giant explosion in DevOps, right? And all the training I have to take now about DevOps and all the channels that we have to manage now and make everything update at once. Um, But I think you tapped into like the truly, truly scary thing, which is consumer demands and expectations. (laughs) I mean, who knows how far we're going to take that in the future. Your your earlier comment um, about the the historical context remind me of the, the Gartner hype cycle. So Gartner being the, uh, I don't know, the industry analyst, they, they have this sort of curve. Um, and I'll describe it to you since you can't see it. Every technology follows this curve and it comes in maybe the midpoint on the y-axis. And then as people start using it, it goes up, 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 up uh, to, you know, to maximum hype. And then at the there's an immediate fall off to the what's called the trough of, of disillusionment, and it goes all the way down to the bottom, and then it sort of uh, goes back to that midpoint, and it's a, a plateau of productivity, something like that. So with every new technology, we go through this you know massive hype, a disappointment, and then a reality. And I think part of that hype includes a, a fear of, hey, what am I going to do when this thing takes over? Um, and it's not going to take over. It's going to have its place. Um, and, uh, as, and like you said earlier, when you, when you use it, it's going to be another tool that helps you. You've certainly learned how to use tools uh, as you've grown as a person, uh, no matter who you are. So hey, why, why fear one more tool? I think you literally just described Taylor Swift's career journey with your tale of disillusionment and then back up to it has a place in the world. 
Well, I don't think there's any other AI podcast that can quite invoke Taylor Swift like we did. <laughs> it's true, right? I feel like that should be applied to just like the pop industry in general. That was amazing. Um, okay, now what? What else is in our in our outline? We've completed the outline. I think we yes. <laughs> we we finished our three our three fears. So I think we'll tease the next episode. I'm thinking about a thankfulness, uh, a Thanksgiving episode, uh, all the ways the AI uh, has helped us, the things we're thankful about. Uh, that's so nice. Yeah, let's do that. Awesome. Well, let's do the outro then. Uh, so oh, that's your job. First, yep, go for it. First, you can find me at Andrew R. Freed on Twitter, on LinkedIn. You can find Jen, Jennifer Sukas on LinkedIn. You can find the podcast, AI Zen Podcast on Twitter. Uh, or you can find the, the podcast itself uh, anywhere you get podcasts. Please subscribe. Please leave us comments on any of those previous uh, outlets. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, lastly, you can find uh, the show's page, uh, AI Zen with Andrew and Jen on LinkedIn. All right. Have a happy Halloween, everybody. Thanks, Andrew. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye.